gentlemen welcome back to stories out of time and space i'm your regular host scott weatherly and as always i'm joined by julian darius julian how are you doing you okay i am and i am also the law indeed indeed i think yes i think we're going to be forming some real judgments on things today and uh, passing the laws um as you may have guessed i know you probably haven't guessed actually just from that uh, today's uh, film we're going to be recording is going to be the 2012 Dread. Just to reassure people, if they did think we're not going to be touching on this, well, we will be touching on, but we're not discussing the 1995 Stallone one. Um, maybe one day when the well has run dry. But, <laughs> <laughs> but right now we're going to be talking the 2012 Dread. Just to give some details about it, say, directed by Peter Travis, written by Alex Garland, um, who uh, created and... and well, wrote and directed, I think, several uh, Ex Machina, Annihilation, uh, some other uh, pretty good films, starring Carl Urban as Dread, uh, Olivia Th- Thirlby as Judge uh, Anderson, Lena Headey as Mama, Wood Harris as Kay. And I'll give a very, very brief synopsis because that's really all that there is. <clears throat> uh, cadet Anderson um, is on assessment uh, as a cadet by Judge Dread. She is taken on a drug uh, gang bust into the Peach Trees mega block. And from there, the two judges have to survive. That's pretty much it. It's a really sort of slim story. Um, but before we get into it, uh, what was really like uh, your introduction to both well, both Judge Dread um, uh, and then the film as well, uh, Dread? Because obviously, Judge Dread being a, an English or British uh, comic strip. So, what was your introduction to to Dread? Well, you know, uh, thinking about this film, I have realized how much I grew up on Judge Dredd, that I I don't really remember my first exposure to it. I was, as a kid, it was certainly after, say, about 10, something like that. But from there onward, I just bought every single European, Japanese, foreign edition graphic novel I ever could. And so... Judge Dredd was something that existed in collections. It existed in, you know, random issues of 2018 <laughs> I could get in the back of some old comic shop. And, and everywhere that I travel across the country, anywhere I'd go, I'd go to a comic shop. And if they had, you know, another uh, edition of something from 2018, I'd, I'd get, you know, Devil and Wow. And I have no idea mm. how we fit into everything. But I, I'd read it and I'd just be exposed to these random stories. So I sort of grew up with Dredd. Um, and I remember when the first Dread movie came out, you know, wanting it to be a hit and, and sort of having a reaction to it. And, you know, thinking, you know, basically at that time, I thought, well, you know, it's the 90s. This is this is good enough. I mean, this is OK. <laughs> Maybe this gets some people to read it and they realize that the comic is better. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that was the case of a lot of those early comic book movies. So, but obviously it was hated and reviled over time. So Mm. when I knew that they were doing a new one, 
I knew I, I wanted it to be a hit and I went to see it and just adored it. And it, it meant the world to me and it still does. I, I still love it. So what about you? What's your dread history? Yeah, well, first of all, I agree. I adore this film. And uh, um, I have similar feelings towards the 95 film, which we'll, we will be touching on. But my, mine is, is sort of... Um, it's almost like quintessentially British for certain kids, like comic book kids of the sort of the, of, you know, um, I, I came up on sort of like the Beano and Dandy and those sort of like kiddie uh, comedy comics initially. And then as I got older, sort of like, you know, you start to pick up things. I was aware of the American comics. Um, everyone's always aware of Batman and, and all that sort of, sort of Superman. But I remember I went on a day trip uh, <clears throat> one, one summer holiday. I was given some money, sent to the news agents go pick up a comic because you're going on a bus trip to somewhere and you're going to want something to read. So sent to the news agent, scanning through the usual fare, and then there was this, this cover and it had Dread sort of like just bursting through the cover on his lawmaster, the big motorbike that they have. And inside it was several um, chapters of uh, the Cursed Earth saga, mm. sort of the first proper mega epic that they did for 2000 AD. Quite early on, it was a reprint, so there was a thing called the Complete Judge Dread um, before they became the complete case files, which is the big omnibus editions they do, it was these monthly comics. Um, and I just read that and read that over and over again and, and loved it. And I went after that, I went back to the news agent and I was like, What is this? <laughs> where, where, where's more of this? And, and I was shown 2000 AD. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I must have been about this must have been like 88, 89, well, yeah, around 89 ish. And so, yeah, I was like, this is amazing. And so I was introduced to 2000 AD and all the characters went with it. And Dread is obviously the main. It's their primary character. He's in every issue other than the very, very first issue. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. It's introduction to, and one day I think maybe we'll have to do a, a 2000 AD sort of, you know, dive into for some of the other characters um, that are worth noting. Uh, but anyway, but for, for yeah, that was it, and that was it. Now for years after that, I sort of I I got 2008 Weekly, the Judge Dread magazine that started in like '92, um, and so when the film came out in '95, I was beyond excited. Like it was all being hyped in uh, in the 2008 and all this other stuff, and they were going to release an additional comic, and so yeah, I was I snuck in. I was slightly um, slightly underage because it was a 15 over here. Uh, and we got in to see it and i remember sort of the first 10 minutes being like this is awesome you know it's sort of ridiculous it's got the right feel and then he takes the helmet off and you're like this is crap <laughs> <laughs> and that's it um so when this was made and when this was coming out i, I was nervous I, I will admit that you know you're nervous because you do get to point and i think you know we've said it about other properties that you sort of go how can they do this any way that you're going to feel is is um, authentic to the source material, you know, is it going to feel right? Is it going to feel cheap? Because I also knew that when this was being made, that the, they had budget restraints. So I was like, oh, is it going to feel cheap? Is it going to be a bit crap? And then I saw the trailer and I was like, nope, I'm in. I'm in. That's good. I'm going to go see this. And um, yeah, as yourself, I went, I adored it and I went to the cinema and I was just blown away. I was like, wow, yeah, <laughs> they're going to do that. So <laughs> I, yeah, I love this film. 
Well, for me, one of the curiosities of Dread has always been that it's set in America. Um, so uh, when the Stallone one came out, I remember the there was a deal with DC where DC was doing their own comics. And so all my friends were like, oh, you know, what are these new comics? Right. Mm. Uh, you know, w- what's the deal with this Judge Dredd? And I'm like, oh, you know, and then those comics were kind of shit. Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I had to sort of get people into the real stuff. But. One of the curiosities has always been, I mean, this is like the most recognizable British comics character, uh, Mm. I think. Um, And yet his stories take place in Mega City One, which is sort of a uh, imagine if uh, the entire eastern seaboard uh, sort of like from, you know, north of New York and, you know, up into like Maine, all the way Mm. down to like, you know, Virginia depends on which map you're looking at. Just those cities just kept growing and growing and growing and just merged with each other Mm -hmm. to form one giant massive city. And then thermonuclear war happened and it got cut off from the rest of the world. And so there's this sort of walled mega city uh, one. And so for me, I think we've talked about this before, the sort of politics of Dread. That for me, it was always confusing that the, the most recognizable British character <laughs> took place in my country. And he's kind of a fascist. He's, mm. you know, he's a cop. He, and for me, there's always this part of my brain that was thinking, I know at some point this is how the Brits see my country. You yeah. know, how do I understand that? <laughs> well, it's interesting because, I mean, when when Dread was created, I mean, Dread went through several iterations before he hit the page. Um and and the, the the creators, obviously like John Wagner, Pat Mills, uh, Carlos Escalera, uh, you know, they wanted to create this specific thing. And I think there were iterations that were going to be British. And then you know, and it was the further they could take it away, the more alien they could make it, the more they could get past the censors. Mm. So all right, so yeah, we're not going to mention Britain at all. <laughs> And it's going to set in the far future, and instead of you know certain things, we're going to have aliens and muties and all this other stuff. So they're able to get away with a lot more. Um, if you do, I mean, we, we you know we'll try and focus on the film. But if you do want to know more, there's a fantastic book. Well, there's lots of good books, but there's a really good one called um, uh, what's it? It's, it's Pat Mills. Um, be vigilant. Um, uh, oh, it's be, be yeah, be something. Be behave. But it's, it's his secret history of the creation of 2000 AD. And he talks a lot about why dread is the way dread is. Um, and, and that sort of thing. Of, and knowing obviously that John Wagner is, is an American that was living in Britain as well. But yeah, it, you know, it, it's weirdly counter to the culture of, and even so, you know, in 2012, it's weirdly ca- uh, counter to the culture of, you had a lot of cop shows. And then in the eighties you had, you know, cops were the heroes of all the action films and all sort of things. And then you've got this future cop who, while be while she said, whilst being the protagonist, isn't the hero. You know, <laughs> really. Um, and, and that's the, that's really the way this film works. Mm-hmm. You know, like he is the protagonist. Uh, you know, as well as Judge Anderson, but like, hero is probably a bit of a push. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I, I that's one of the things that I love most about this movie. Um, but before we get into that, I mean, I wanted to ask about sort of, we both love this movie. And, mm. you know, John Wagner praised it as sort of getting Dread right. And, I mean, this is about as close to a perfect sort of first 
dread movie that I can imagine. Um, and whatever tweaks I'd make, I'd make a few, but they're pretty minor and I'm super happy with it. But it occurs to me that I don't know how faithful it is that, you know, you were talking about like the Cursed Earth saga, right? Mm. I mean, the Cursed Earth saga has like the Burger Wars where like, you know, <laughs> Burger King and, and uh, you know, sort of like something out of Martha Washington, right? Or that really was out of 2000 AD where, you know, sort of um, uh, McDonald's and Burger King have armies and, and bizarre cyborgs and, and stuff like this. And, um, and 2000 AD always had a lot of that sort of satire. It had a lot of um, sort of adapting a new movie that was popular, figuring mm. out some way to make a strip out of it or, you know, turn it into a, a one-off Judge Dredd story. Um, and right after the Cursed Earth was, you know, the day the law died where, you know, you've got uh, the chief judge appointing a fish mm -hmm. uh, as a judge. Yeah. And I love it. I adore that stuff, but it's so wacky and crazy. And so much of Judge Dredd of the comics and so much of his universe is just filled with, like you said, mutants and wackiness and craziness. Mm -hmm. That in some ways, the 2004 movie, while obviously no Dredd fan is going to like him removing his head, his, his helmet, his uh, you know bike is big and bulky mm -hmm. and he's got the ridiculous armor. And that movie is so over the top in a way and doesn't take itself seriously in a way that this does. So I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, it is interesting because I think one of the one of the real issues you have with with the Judge Dredd universe is that Dredd is the straight man. Like, you know, he he's always the straight man. Like he is uh as you say, a fascist he's what well, whether he is a fascist is debatable, but he is definitely the tool of a fascist regime uh, in that the judges the judges are not just the law enforcement, they are the government. They, it's a militaristic <clears throat> regime. Um, and the thing is, with the comics, because you have an infinite budget with the comics, you can do all kinds of crazy things. And I think the Cursed Earth saga is one of the best examples of that. You know, They go off trundling across the Cursed Earth on this mission of mercy from Mega City 1 to Mega City 2. And you're right, you you encounter on that journey, um, you encounter uh, robot vampires. You encounter the Burger Wars. You encounter cloned dinosaurs that are being used for pit fighting, and all these other crazy things. Mutants that have uh, one. There's one where the, a mutant army has carved the their, the face of their leader onto Mount Rushmore. Like you know, all this craziness and oddness yeah. and wackiness encounters. And throughout it all, though, like Dread is the straight man. Um, you know, and one of the, um, but they were always using that to hit things home. There's a, um, uh, an issue, a couple of issues within the, the Curse of the Saga where you meet an alien called Tweak. Mm -hmm. And Tweak is like a fuzzy looking aardvark kind of thing. And he, but he's being used for slavery, like, you know, and you find out that Tweak actually, rather than being submissive and weak, is actually incredibly intelligent and incredibly strong and all this other stuff and, and became submissive to protect. His, his his home planet and all this other stuff. It's really heartbreaking. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden, with all this craziness, you're a bit like, no, this is heartbreaking. And the final panel of that story is Dread writing in his journal as they carry on the journey. And he's like, sometimes the human race is garbage. Like literally <laughs> and, and you're just like, Wow, all right, that's that's a panel in a comic <laughs> that's supposed to be an adventure comic. And you know, like you say, so and it goes on like throughout the years there's been loads of this stuff. Um if you were to put all of that verbatim into a film, mm -hmm. 
it, it would just be too much. I don't think people could could take it. It's just too too much. Um, it would be like a you would literally go footsie. It would be like a sensory overload of all this information, and it just, but it wouldn't work. You'd end up with something similar to like Batman and Robin, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like massive architecture and silly villains, and then like a central character. Um, and so yeah, you do you have to play that down. The problem, I think, with the 1995 version is, firstly, I mean, Stone was fine as Dread when he's got his helmet on and stuff. That Again, I say that, that first 10 minutes with the block war is actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has things in, like it's got an ABC warrior, it's got Robusters in there, so you've got the ABC Warbot, <clears throat> Hammerstein. You've got a, a really cool-looking Mean Machine. Like Mean Machine is one of the best-looking characters in that film, and they're great from the comics. Like they've, It's got some of the lunacy in it. But then it also sort of took dread to that place of giving him catchphrases and trying to make him a bit funny and, and gives him, an, you know, emotions and all this other stuff. And you're like, I don't know. Someone smarter than me could pull it together, maybe. I don't know if it's ever worked. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think if you're going to let settle in the mainstream, you need to sort of tone it down, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think... I like what you said about uh, sort of uh, Stallone getting catchphrases, and it occurs to me mm. that if, if you're going to invest that kind of money into a, into a blockbuster, especially in America, we have this this thing that I really hate <laughs> about our fiction that we we want our heroes to be likable, right? Mm-hmm. We need to be able to identify with them, and you know, some degree of identification is fine, but. You know, give me a alien, unidentifiable character every time. I mean, I like the baddies. I like. I always, you know. I mean, come on. I mean, I. I Darth Vader's the good guy. Okay, we all know this. Um, so you know, I mean, I, that's my own personal taste. And so I think this film does that so much better. Mm. This film doesn't. I mean, you were talking about sort of it having the feeling that. It's not really clear whether Dredd's a fascist, but he's certainly not the hero. And one of the things that I love so much about this movie is that nobody is the good guys. Mm. It is crystal clear that Dredd, you know, what he's doing is unfair. I mean, we're told right away that, like, you know, 6% of crimes are receive an officer response, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, you are, I mean, and that's key to the Dredd universe that... It's sort of the justification for the whole comic book fascism is like, hey, look, crime is out of control. It makes more sense than Batman, right? Because in Batman, mm-hmm. we always say, you know, why would you stay in Gotham City? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. The Joker's just turned us all into zombies yet again. Mm. Maybe it's time to move, Grandma. Um, but in, in the Dread universe, it's just it's such a big city. You can't possibly police it. The crime is out of control. And so... That makes it a lot more understandable that people would give in to gang life. You know, mm. this is all they knew. Advancing was all Mama knew. And so you even have that character who is ready to, um, is uh, forced to sort of help Dredd and Anderson, who says, you know, look, I mean, essentially, you're going to be gone and yeah. I'm going to be stuck in this building. When's the next time we're going to get a, a, a cop over here? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things, that, you know, and um, one of the things I do like about this film is they do give exposition. There are some slight exposition dumps to give you into the universe. Like, you know, you get the, the Carl Urban uh, voiceover at the beginning, which is fine because you need it. For those, anyone who's not known this world, you need to sort of 
give them at least a bit of information. You couldn't just drop them into this, I don't think. But then Anderson provides some um, exposition. And especially when they do go to Peachtree's, there's that sort of like, you know, she's obviously the cadet. She's being assessed by Dredd. And so Dredd's like, okay, tell me what you know. And so we as the viewer get to tap into that information. And she does. She says, like, I think at one point, like 97% unemployment in peach trees. Yeah. So, 97, so 97% of the people in this building are unemployed. And so that leads to, okay, well, I've still got to pay for stuff. I've still got to feed my family. So I can't imagine there being a social support system in the, in the Dreadverse, really, or at least a good one. Um, and so, like you say, the, the fact that people are turning to crime or just general boredom is driving some of this stuff. Like, it's not surprising at all. And so, yeah, we, we'll talk about Marmar in a minute. But the guy, he's at the, he's at the block medic. And this is a guy, a single guy, looking after 200 floors. <laughs> and, and, and actually, he says, like you said, there's a scene where he's sort of giving the breakdown. Like he gives another expo dump about stuff. And he says, like, well, yeah, we haven't seen a judge in so however long, you know. And he said, well, you've got one now. And you can still see the guy's like, oh, good. We've got one now. <laughs> for how long? <laughs> for how, yeah, for how long? Like, you know. Um, and he does sort of almost disengage from it. Like, you know, at one point later on, they turn up at the med unit. And he's like, nope. <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't be a part of this. I've almost got to be, like, you know, bipartisan in this whole thing. Like, um, And it's completely understood. Like, you know, it's I completely understand why he does that. Um, yeah. I mean, at the risk of jumping forward, I mean, a, a couple scenes that sort of stick out for me as things that I like incredibly that sort of get at this moral ambiguity. I mean, one is obviously, um, you know, after this fight, uh, Dredd has thrown a sort of flashbang and they've taken out a bunch of guys in a corridor and Anderson's got someone dead to rights and, and Dredd says, you know, uh, it's assault on uh, a uh, an officer, a judge. Um, the sentence is death, mm. and Anderson <coughs> shoots him. You know, mm. Which is uh, such a great moment in the film, right? I mean, it's it's that moment where every Hollywood film would pull back, uh, you know, or conversely, let somebody do that and seem risque and, or or cutting edge, and then by the end, really strongly pull back. I think this film pulls back a little, but mm. with the typical Hollywood movie, strongly pulls back and makes that person a savior, <laughs> makes it all okay. This movie doesn't do any of that. And then later on, you see the um, wife, and and you don't see the child, but you're made to understand that they have a child together of the person who she's murdered. Mm. Uh, I say murdered because it's a, a unarmed person who's who's in captivity, and uh, she quite understandably the the wife says, "Well, um, I'll help you, but I'm not helping you to help you. I'm helping you to get you out of here because as yeah. long as you're here." You're going to be shooting at my husband and my husband's going to be shooting at you and people are going to die. Not just you people, but, you know, civilians in the crossfire. And here again, it's not at all clear that it's a good thing that the judges are there. No, the judges in this film are, again, sort of not seen as a positive presence. You know, we, we um, even we... we we get dread. I mean, you know, the, the, one of the, the sort of, you know, we'll get into it. one of the flaws of this film is I don't think you get enough um, exposure to the judge system. You get dread and you get and, and you get Anderson and then you get some corrupt judges that come later on. But there's very little of, 
and here's how successful judging works across the sort of the city. Uh, and that's fine. It's a short film. The budget was low. And, you know, you couldn't do that kind of thing. But even when you get the intro section to this film, which is the sort of um, there's a there's a car chase, which again includes uh, the introduction to slow mo, which is the drug of choice for this movie. Um, and Dread responds to this thing. Um, it's quite brutal. I mean, you know, the, the van that the guys are driving are like knocking people left and right. It, and the judges are almost not, they're not part of it. They're trying to avoid people. But there's that sort of note of his response is like, people are down. Like, you know, he's not like, oh my God, they're killing people. He's just like, people are down. I'm going to go <laughs> sort this out. And, um, and I'm going to kill them. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. That yeah point, they're killing execution. people. I'm going to kill them. <laughs> yeah. It is literally just black and white, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. Like, when the car, when the van does crash eventually and he follows him into another block, um, you know they they have that confrontation and i kind i like it i think it's a bit silly but it, it builds into that sort of notion um you know and it's not going to be just a standard execution he takes a woman hostage and then dread sort of says you know what is it it's your call hot shot and then he goes what, what did you say he's like hot shot and it's a, an incendiary and he shoots him in the face with an incendiary bullet <laughs> and you're, you're sort of like again you're like that's cool he's badass it's kind of you know this is what dread is he's badass but then you're also thinking slightly overkill, <laughs> you know, does he take some sort of pleasure out of this? Because it's that's ex that's excessive police force. Like, you know, even if you're going to execute someone, it's fine. But to then shoot them in the face with an incendiary seems a bit much. Um, so, yeah, the judges in this film, while set, set up as the, the law, the thin blue line, I think we've sort of, you know, I think we've mm. used before, is, but they are not a good pacifying force like escalation seems to be there you know what I mean? there's no de-escalation of this they don't come in to negotiate it's like no we're going to come in i'm going to break your kneecaps for littering that's it yeah no absolutely and and, and i'm sure dread has done exactly that yeah. plenty of times in the comic <laughs> um i mean there are so many strips in which he gives out what seems to be excessive sentences uh i mean here we kind of have a glimmer of that with a homeless person that you know mm. yeah, i mean Homelessness is a crime, basically. I mean, this is, you know, I'm not gonna, I was, I'm not gonna say Giuliani's New York, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I mean, there is. I, I sort of felt that that intro sequence was a little too generic, and I felt the the low budget there, um, and and the hotshot thing is, you know, it's fine. It's a it's a little, it's a little more in that comedic realm of mm. that we were talking about of the comic, um, but yeah, I mean. It's this thing about policing. I mean, I wonder, like, if this came out now, how it would be received in the wake of Black Lives Matter. I mean, we live in a different time in which I think in some good ways we're allowed to question policing mm. in ways that we weren't before. And there is this paradox of, I mean, Dredd obviously sees himself as the thin blue line, right? I mean, without me, there is mama. Without me, there is chaos. Mm -hmm. I am the one who arrives and stops that van mowing down people right and if that's your job and if that's what you're doing great on the other hand if you're arresting people for littering and you know uh going i mean really what the peach trees are is you know i mean this is a ghetto he's going into a ghetto where basically cops don't go and yeah. you know interfering with these lives that while those lives are miserable He's not there to, like, distribute food and money yeah. to people. He's there to, to get the criminal and get out. 
and that's not it's not going to solve anything well like you say the, the homeless person uh, you know that they meet as they were going into peach trees <clears throat> um they see him and they, he does say it's like you know vagrancy um and he sort of says like you know past judgment and, it's, and anderson again says oh it'd be like i don't know like six months or whatever in the in the cubes but then they know that they're there to for so therefore some people have been killed so it's like weirdly dread being i don't know about compassionate is probably the wrong word but that sort of thing like look don't be here when we get back mm-hmm. you know and again it's that thing of like there's so much crime really what it comes across is there's so much crime is dealing with you is just an inconvenience where we could be dealing with something bigger so basically sod off um and it, it plays for future it plays sorry, it's played for humor because the guy's got a sign that says we'll debase self for food um which is quite funny. Um, so it, it's, you know, it, it's played up in some parts. But again, like, as it comes up, like you say, there are scenes in this film where you think, yeah, compassion could be used or could have been an alternative, and it's just not. Mm-hmm. You know, like you say, the execution of that guy. Um, and you, I mean, you know, it's then, as you get to the end, uh, the we'll get to the finale or the third act of this film because the, as it gets to the act it becomes a little more hollywood pedestrian and some choices mm-hmm. are made that i think they, they pull like as you said earlier on they pull back a little bit but up until that point like yeah dread is just a machine like he'll just mow through people to get to his um what he sees as the thing that he is trying to solve so in this case they go in they, i mean they're sent to peach trees because of these these two people that have been killed and then when he learns that there's uh, something else going on, he learns about Mama and he learns about the distribution of slow-mo. Like, that becomes his mission. Mm-hmm. And there's like, okay, well, she's up there, I'm here, so the mission is now go up and, and get her. We've got to stop this, the distribution of slow-mo. And anything that gets in his way is just a distraction. And, and you know, and that's sort of how the film sort of builds. But that's also dread. Like, he's just sort of, he's a very blunt tool. You know, he, yeah. he he deals with what's in front of him, um, and that to me that that is a really um, is is such an accurate portrayal of dread from the comics. You know that he will he'll just deal with things that are in front of him. He's not going as you said. He's not going well. Oh, I, I see why this has happened in this block, and we really should be looking at a social support structure that will give these people food and medicine and, and finances to support themselves, because that will then take away the drugs. He's like, no, no, I'm just going to shoot people till they stop. <laughs> well, Scott, you know, you can't expect that out of an American movie. Okay, <laughs> no. we like our dirty Harrys. You know, nobody in any American movie is ever going to stop and say, what about the support network? You know. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm a liberal and, you know, for years when I would hear uh, British people talk with pride about the cradle to the grave support mm. system over here, it's like that, that. It's like, what are you talking about? Cradle <laughs> to grave. I mean, like, oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, our movies aren't going to have that kind of thing. Um, but I do think like, yeah, I mean. What astonishes me is is sort of along the lines of what you were saying is that he never stops to talk about his emotions. Mm. There are so many times where this movie communicates. I mean, you were talking about the use of exposition. There's so many times where this communi- this movie communicates without dialogue, where mm. what's important mm. is what's not said, um, where we understand what's going on. We understand what Dredd is, is going through or what he's feeling or his character but it's not communicated through dialogue and nobody ever stops to talk about their feelings, even though you get it. 
And I think that that is, that is really key to dread and to getting dread right. Um, is this is not a guy who makes small talk, right? I yeah. mean, they, they yeah, make the just... smart choice of keeping the helmet on, right? Yeah, yeah. But dread has never in history said, how you do it? That's, yeah. How's your day going? <laughs> That's so not he's, a lot. Yeah, he's, he's not exactly sparkling conversation at dinner parties. You know, it's not... Uh... That's not his forte. Um, and they do, I mean, one of the things, we'll, we'll get on to Dread, I suppose, but one of the things that they do from the off <clears throat> is, you know, first you've got, that, you've got that intro, so you're shown that Dread is um, ruthless and brutal and everything else. Uh, yeah, you've got the, the, the humour, but when you are sort of like reintroduced to Dread uh, with uh, Judge Anderson, so you're introduced to Judge Anderson and it's explained that she's a mutant and she has some psychic abilities, Um but she's also just failed. Like she's failed by a couple of points, um, uh, the cadet test or the, the the judge test. So Dred's being asked to do like an on street assessment to see what it is, <clears throat> and you sort of get this this view of Dred straight away. I mean, the chief judge says to him like, you know, she passed by a she failed by a few points, and his simple answer is, "Don't she failed?" Like, right. There's no margin forever on this. She either passed or she failed. Um, but more than that, when you then get this assessment of dread from Anderson, like she's asked to use her abilities and you get sort of her saying, Oh, there's another judge. Uh, I feel he's a, he's a male judge and I get this sense of rage, but control. And then there's something else behind that control. And then she's cut off, you know, so mm-hmm. it's sort of like, Oh yeah. And the chief judge says, Oh, thank, thanks very much. Um, and so that's not really dug into it's, it's sort of, to me, it's always in, it's sort of uh, suggestive of the fact that dreads a clone. In, in the mm-hmm. books, uh, whether that sort of it's not it's never really touched on, and, and whether cloning would be a part of this universe, I don't know. But again, it's that thing that I say the first thing she comes across is not the control, not dedication to duty, not commitment to the city, is rage. Like he right. has just this simmering rage, and then it's just under control all the time. And it's so it's this sort of, um, and that's what you say, but throughout the film, like he never touches on that, like he's not going to sit down and go. I need to discuss what's, you know, why am I so upset with everything? Like, you know, it's the, the, the injustice that's going on around me just drives me crazy. Um, no, it's just part and parcel of it. Like, the whole thing is just, it, I don't know, it's, it, it's never dug into and it never will be because it's not what he is. And I, I do kind of like that, but it's there uh, from the offset, like you're told who he is. Um, yeah, I think this dread is a complicated character. I mean, I mm. think that. And in the comics, too. I mean, but in the comics, they've gone much further with, you know, the democracy movement and mm. with, you know, dread dealing with mutant rights and all of this stuff. Um, but. But, you know, I mean, he's not a liberal in the comics. It's not like they've seen the light. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. But, but I think that the dread that's presented here is very interesting. It occurs to me that one of the key things that always upsets and I think we're supposed to be upset by in the 2000 AD comics is this idea of selective enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. And we see this in, in real life policing, that it's clear that Dredd acknowledges that, right? Because in the stopping, uh, in the sort of vagrancy comment comment to the homeless man, obviously Dredd is capable of making those calls, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have to arrest you, right? <laughs> I don't, I mean, now Dredd could just as easily say, I, I have the power of selective enforcement, we don't need to execute this guy. I have the power of selective enforcement. I mean, maybe dealing drugs in this particular ghetto of a high rise is 
you know, should not be a fatal offense. Mm. It should not be something that we're going to cart you around and lock you up for. Um, he's capable of doing that. But I think his, and, and we'll get to like whether he changes or not, but I, but I think that for as much of a thug as he is, he also represents a sort of understandable version of a conservative mentality, which, you know, seems to me to be like, okay, this is the law. Yeah, you're right. Only 6% of calls are responded to. The solution to that is more judges or you guys stop committing as much crime. In the meantime, <laughs> this law's on the book and I'm damn well going to enforce it. If you don't like that, you know, the, the judges can change the law. But right now, this is the way it is. Um, it's a it's a it's an understandable sort of mentality, I think. It's it's at least a um he's not a bad guy, but he he has that sort of like stereotypical uh unexamined, very masculine sort of black and white way of seeing the world. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is with with Dredd, I mean that was one of the problems I have with the 95 version. Is that that you know he starts the film, at least attempting to try and be that you know that sort of thing, and it's more humorous. I mean you know um, they make a joke about sort of in that at the start of the night five version when he arrests rearrests uh, Rob Schneider's uh, Fergie, you know um, Hershey the the uh, character that another one of the sort of female judges it's prevalent throughout the the dread verse in the comics says to him sort of like, you know dread you, you know this guy, he's literally just got out. He was trying to survive. Do you not have any, you know, do you not have any feelings about that? Any sort of like emotions, ugh, there should be a law against them. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's played for humor. And you're like, yeah, you know, a bit too on the nose. We get the point. Um, this film's less sort of on the nose in many other ways, but this film's more like, you know, he's not even going to engage in that way. Like, you know, if you were to take the Carl Urban dread and put him in that situation, like he wouldn't even respond to Hershey. He'd just be like, mm-hmm. And walk off. Like, you know, he's mm-hmm. not going to try and make a one-line or even engage with it. But the problem with the 95 one is, by the end of the film, like, you know, he's smiling, he is acknowledging that he's the hero of the city, um, you know... He's being cheered. That. He's being cheered for, for doing what he's doing. Like, yeah, he's literally being cheered as the hero of the city. Um, and then there's sort of, you know, he as he, as he rides off to sort of defend his city again, like, it's, it's the end... Whilst there's some fantastic special effects and some awesome matte paintings in that finale, like it looks stunning, uh, and we'll get onto the look of the film later. But like it's almost like the end of Batman '89, mm-hmm. you know, it's that heroic thing. And I, for a Batman film, especially sort of a Tim Burton film, you know, you get the the um, Danny Elfman music because it pans up, and you get the bat signal, and then you get the silhouette of Batman stood watching over his city. Like that's what you expect. Because he is Batman, and that's what I expect from a cape and cowl kind of film. That is not Judge Dredd. So to have him sort of like, you know, um, to go through all this stuff where he's uncovered this massive conspiracy of cloning and his, his own cloned brother and corrupt judges, to then come out of it and just go, all right, I'm, I'm off to, to do patrolling, and then have him drive up on a, a speedway and have the silhouette there. It, it, it's that heroic heroicism mm-hmm. of this character and that's the 95 film in a nutshell and that's the problem with it in this film there's a little bit of that towards the end which we will deal with but this dread is not that like this dread this dread's just sort of like all those problems that would just sort of just be um 
and, and that's why I like this this dread more. Is that you said he's more complex? He is more complex. He has got some emotions, but he's not there to have an arc because th- this is one day. This may not even be his worst day. You know, right. like this is just a day being a judge. And so he's not going to start going, I've had massive revelations about how the judicial system of this city. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, it's not. It's like these, I'm busted. You know, he's, he's do, there's been a drugs bust and he's killed a bunch of people and he survived and he goes on and that's it. And, and that's why I think this film, for me, works. But I also think it's the reason that it didn't work for a lot of people. Well, and I think this gets into some of our own personal biases and some of our own mm. personal prejudices that both of us like the small story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can't, I am so sick of seeing stories set in futuristic worlds, dystopian or not, where, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to trash Minority Report. I mean, I respect it. We, we've had a conversation about <laughs> it. But Minority Report is all about, here is this interesting future world. Now watch me destroy it. Yeah, I have recognized this is wrong, and I'm going to to stop it. So many stories wind up being some version of that, right? Mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. you said, like I've seen the light. Um, it shouldn't be this way. That's there's no point in which you know anyone. These people live in this universe, and I think you know there's this other thing of you know look at how much morality changes. Look at how much we have put up with that is not acceptable. Then mm. nobody gets up, just wakes up one day and says, you know, hey, you know, I think we're killing too many black kids. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, things are acceptable and they have a momentum on their own and people complain about their situation. They know their life sucks in this movie. Um, you know, Anderson knows that the she wants to be a judge, but the judge system is not the be all and end all as it's presented in this movie. Um, and yet it's like, this is the way it is. Here's this future vision. It's beautiful. The aesthetics of this movie are fantastic. I, I, I'm sucker for aesthetics. And it sort of presents this worldview unless you inhabit it for a day and then gets out. Mm. 90 minutes. I mean, mm. imagine how horrible this movie would be at two and a half hours Ugh. like a Marvel movie. Yeah. No, you, well, you'd be exhausted. Like, I think you'd, just, you'd, you'd probably come out of it traumatized. You know, sort of like... Um, you might well, anyway at 90 minutes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> With the bullets um, ripping through people. And I, th- I think one of the things that's interesting, like, you know, you talk about the arcs in this film, in that point of this film being, it just exists within this universe. One of the key points about that is, um, we've said it's, a, it's called Dread, and Dread is most definitely the protagonist. But it's not his story. Um, at least I don't feel that it is. It's Judge Anderson's story. Mm-hmm. she is the point of view character that we are given it's her that's on assessment and it's her that has the arc and while she has both it's it's but it's not even like a, it's not a straightforward arc either right you know it's it's one of those ones that again you know going back to that sort of that typical sci-fi uh, not even actually or the action film or like you said that the arc is going to be i'm going to bring down this system and you know to sort of um to bring in another uh, Stallone film. If you think of like Demolition Man, mm-hmm. you know, sort of they introduced um, John Spartan, the Stallone character, in this sort of like utopian universe, and then you've got these underlings that sort of live in the series and stuff. And he's going to basically, again, he introduces it and decides to tear it all down because he learns how this thing goes, and that's the the typical thing. And when you introduce a Judge Anderson, 
she's asked like why do you want to be a judge what are you what is it that you intend to do it's to help people to make the world a better place and to do it and to and she's basically saying like to make the system better and even dread sort of like yeah a lot of people have started that way yeah and this film you know by the end of this film she is a much stronger person i would say that she ends up becoming a stronger character mm-hmm. but but there's a there's a that shine has been taken off yeah, um, it it comes at a cost, and I think so. You know, whilst at the end of the, most of these, if, you, if this was a typical film, the end would be Judge Anderson saying, "No, this is wrong, and doing some of this stuff is wrong, and I'm going to try and you know go off and become uh, a, a protester or you know have some activist against the judicial system." But basically, like she is incorporated into the system even more so than she is at the start of the film. Well, I mean, I, I would say that the the. Hollywood ending of this movie is mm. uh, that um, the little kids from the uh, peace trees come up and thank uh, Judge Dredd and Anderson oh, for yeah. uh, having gotten rid of Mama and how they're free of gangs. And you have some shots of them going to a schoolroom that's not a devastated war zone like the <laughs> one we see. in yeah. this. And and then, you know, Judge Dredd turns to Anderson and says, see, you did make a difference. Yeah. And then they walk off together. You know, no, there's no, you're right. I mean, and I love that you were talking about the exposition. To me, you know, the exposition that follows uh, that conversation about wanting to make a difference, I mean, that's that's what people feel when they're new cops. It's what people feel when they're new teachers. Um, you know, I've dealt with that. Um, you know, I've seen people burn out because they mm. wanted to make a difference so much. They take it home with them and they burn out. And And this is just such a classic, a classic story and i love that sort of arc of her character but again it it, it ends it's not even clear that the uh, peach trees is better off for them <laughs> having been there i mean tons of people are dead um you know we don't really see their bodies being carted out but we've seen them get chewed up by you know gatling guns um and you know there's going to be another uh gang person who takes over um there's not going to be another judge unless they're lucky enough to be in that 6%. And, you know, what What was this for? So, you mm. know, you could enforce the law. You could get that slow-mo off the streets. I mean, I guess it was being used by people in the beginning who were running people over. But that's not at all clear that was caused by the slow-mo. Um, I mean, Mama's pretty brutal. I guess the implication is that she was more brutal than the gangs that she replaced. But, you know... It's not like when we've taken out cartels, they're replaced by a softer, gentler cartel. You know, no, that's that's not the history. Well, one of the, one of the things is that, you know, I mean, you know, I think we'll we'll get back to Anderson's theory because Anderson's art because I think that that finale when we get to it that you know we I think I have issues with the finale of this film, um, uh, but also I think like you say so Anderson having the shine taken off her like you say she should come out of this like you say and be told that she's made a difference and she doesn't and it's it sort of. You know, it's that slightly downbeat. But we say that like no one in this film is a hero, and you're right, no one really is. Um, but also, like one of the things this film does is with Mama playing like Lena Headey, and Lena Headey is great. Like she is brilliant in this film. Amen. Uh, Mama is almost given like a sympathetic backstory. Like you find out like she's a hooker, and you know for whatever purpose, like she she was slashed in the face, and and so she decided to take power back and take out her pimp and then took on these gangs 
And the, the exposition we mentioned earlier is when they go to this medic and he explains that, like, yeah, she took out the top and there was the Marmar clan. And then there was these other gangs. There was like the Judged and the Red Dragons and all this other stuff. And she basically went through them and killed them off and beat them to take over the whole of Peach Trees. And it shows you the sort of like she's worked her way down the block, bang, 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 until she runs this block. And there's a part those. So there's no war in this gang. There's no war in this block anymore. There's a single gang. <laughs> that that sounds like a better solution because I'm pretty sure, like you know, yeah, it's probably not great. And you see that there's some brutality and stuff going on, but it's probably better than you know floor by floor gang wars that were probably going on before. So so now I'm thinking. So actually, so has Marmar brought peace to this block? <laughs> yeah. No. And and you know I, I love that. Early on, when she speaks to the peach trees, uh, she is, you know, she stands with the, the knife that's sort of a curved knife at the mm. guy's stomach and, and forces him to keep the cops out and bring them in and whatever. But then she speaks on the loudspeakers, and it's such a beautiful scene to me. It's such a, you know, every moment is right. She gets that microphone. First of all, it's shot looking down. Mm. And the technician is in the foreground and she's in the background on the floor. She looks like some, you know, millennial kid with a scarred face who's a punk who's just sitting on the floor with a microphone. She does not look like a gangster, right? Mm. She does not look like a kingpin character. And then she pauses. And when she speaks, it's not the speech of a supervillain. And I'm listening to you talk. I'm reminded how, first of all, I would list Mama among my favorite Judge Dredd adversaries, um, mm -hmm. and certainly in my top ten, despite that she originated with this film. Um, and then secondly, I am thinking about how much uh, movies, especially Hollywood movies, have failed to make sympathetic villains. Mm. Um, you know, outside of like Magneto, and even he is so-so, depending mm. on which film. I mean, it's like, come on, Thanos doesn't make any sense. I mean, usually yeah. we have these big bads that just, you know... They're horrible, and the point is to get them punching. Mama, you know, I have the same feeling you do, and I. it's also hard not to admire her mm. and admire what she's accomplished in a sort of, like, Scarface way, right? Scarface, we love. He came <laughs> from nothing. He came yeah. to America. He had nothing. And, yeah, he was brutal, but look what he carved out for himself. And, and, and she has, if anything, faced worse circumstances. There are no cops around. There's no system to work with. Mm. Well, yeah, and we'll get to that as well because that's a bit, that's a bit of, a, I feel, a plot hole in this film. But I mean, one of the things they do in this, they do continue to try and show how brutal she is. So that when you when you learn her, and they don't say it outright, but they say that basically she, she bit off a guy's um, genitals and, and sort of like you know uh, to to start herself off. So she has a reputation that she then proceeds to maintain. Like the, you say, the technician. Uh, that sort of supports us, like it's like basically the tech support, the IT guy for the entire block. Um, you know, you find he's got like uh, tech eyes. He's got these sort of like you know augmented eyes, and you do see a flashback of how he lost his original eyes. His mama gouged them out with her thumbs, and so you do see repeatedly that she is brutal, like she is uncompromising. Um, but she almost has to be because again, I think you know. That shot is, as you mentioned, is very good. But one of the other things that this film does is, it, I mean, I think the cinematography is great throughout this film. But one of the things it does is, this film repeatedly shows that that 
you know, Mama's quite short. Lena Head is not a tall woman. Like, you know, she's probably what like five, 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 six at the most. So all the gang members around her like, are clearly taller than her, but they are scared of her. Mm-hmm. You know, and so like you know, it, they don't try and compromise in any way. Like you know, the, she has like a, a second in command who's clearly like a head taller than her, <laughs> and like you know, he is doing as he's told and following her orders and all this other stuff. Like she is in control, and that's well, cool. Right, she achieves that through that viciousness, and mm. and you know, I love what you're saying about the camera angles. And there are times where you're very conscious of the fact that it's shot from a pro in a profile. You're very conscious of the fact that she's shorter um, mm. and that it doesn't shy away from that. And it also, you know, I mean, so much of this, what I love about this movie is uh, not just getting dread right, not just being a fanboy, but also the ways in which it just avoids Hollywood, Hollywood cliches. You know, there again is another one that, you know, she's not, uh, you know, Tom Cruise on platform shoes, you know, <laughs> so that he's the same height. Um, and yet you feel that same intimidation you understand because you've been shown that brutality and also her her ability to make those decisions and enforce mm. those decisions she is not to be screwed with yeah but like she's in charge of this block and there is no doubt about it um but it, it repeatedly shows her brutality but there was mm. it, it never crosses into like joy mm. mm-hmm. and again one of the things i think that sort of like you know it, one of the things that Hollywood does is they will try and sometimes you know they do it quite frequently they'll pick a villain and they'll show he takes pleasure not just it's not just mm. business he'll take pleasure in it you know and, and this is where the Joker sort of like is the the epitome of that um, but there's others where they, they you know like yeah I'm just I'm bad and I'm good at being bad and sort of you know mm-hmm. the, the, almost at like the campiness like there is none of that with Mama like it is all business she's like. I've got a drug manufacturing and distribution business. Someone is threatening that. I'm going to stop them from threatening that in any way possible. That's it. She's almost as clear cut as dread, you know, yes. in that respect. Well, you know, she's like, here's the problem. Here's how we're going to deal with it. And then we carry on. And, and yeah, they, they are the same. two characters that are most alike. Mm. Uh, they both stand out. And Anderson is, you know, the, the more humanized, more normal, uh, slightly more healthy, uh, adjusted person who who wants to make a difference and submits to this fascistic system, um, but still and but is also able to challenge it, and that's why she thinks she she won't pass. Yeah, and you know, we'll, we'll, there's a great scene at the end with her uh, that I really love uh, of Anderson because um, her her arc is is driven by this this thing of being on an assessment. She wants to be a judge, um, and you know she knows that Dred's got is is a, is a tough taskmaster. So she's constantly sort of like you know having to prove herself. And there's a great moment, you know, is it a catchphrase? I don't know. Is it, there's a callback at the beginning where they're about to enter Peachtree, and he says like you know he says to a sort of um, are you ready? And she's like, yeah. And he just goes, mm. you know, he, he sort of like a harumph at her. And then later on in the film, when they're about to go into sort of the final sort of showdown, you know, it's like kind of people, he says, like, you know, are you ready? And she's like, mm. he says, you look ready. And it's that sort of like, mm. you know, she's had that. I want to say growth. It's not. It's it's that yeah. acclimatization to the brutality of the violence. Um, <clears throat> but it's also, I think, a, you know, Dread has a burgeoning respect for her now because of what she's gone through and the decisions that she's made. Um, but with Anderson, I think they like say that compassion, like that human thing that she has, 
um she she you know try she maintains it which is one thing but I'm trying to think what I'm trying to say. She's basically the most human character in the whole film. Like you come across people, and there's some brutal villains in it, and it's weird, I suppose, to have her as the judge to say that. Yeah, she's the most. Ca- Firstly, she's a mutant, so they acknowledge that she's had. She's obviously lived at the edge of the city next to the wall, so radiation has her has, has affected it, which has given her abilities. So she's already from a minority, um, and also being a woman, and also like being a judge. It's this weird combination with Anderson that, like, you know, they, they keep trying to push this stuff to try and break her humanity. I think she bends, but doesn't break. I think by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, I'm in love with judge Anderson. I always have been, yeah. uh, you know, I, I have always loved just judge Anderson as a character. And I think that including her in the first dread film is so right. Using her as that audience identification, doing a sort of training day where Again, avoiding the Hollywood cliches. Literally in the movie Training Day, everything falls apart. The whole point is, you know, you know, that here's this amazing thing we're presenting of corruption. It's all going to fall apart by the end. Here, it's just a day on the job that doesn't, you know, it's a tough day. Um, it clearly affects both of them in different ways. But by the end, it's just another day. Um as another sh- one of those short, you know, smaller stories that we both mm. like, where where Dread says, uh, you know, uh, is it is it Hershey who says, uh, you know, what happened here? And he says, uh, drug bust. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she says, oh, the chief know, judge. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, he says, oh, there's you know a lot of dead. You know, they resisted arrest. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's just like you know, he's not no attempt to play a hero, no attempt to swing in the accolades. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that Anderson has always been a, a little softer. I think Anderson, as a character, lends herself more to those sort of philosophical stories. I think, um, you know, some of my favorite 2000 AD stories have been Judge Anderson stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that, you know, obviously the, the psych, they don't really go into the psychor you know, uh, so, you know, I think that would be hard to present in the film. So it's just like, oh, yeah, that's a one off. She's a she's a mutant with, with psychic powers. And they don't really go into that too much or what she's experienced as a mutant. But I do think it's remarkable that, like you said, she sort of keeps her humanity. But this is a movie that it has a female villain and really the the main character or at least your audience identification character is also a woman. They are both tough as nails. Mm. One sort of is more uh, kind and human and, and struggles to keep that humanity. But you never feel like either this movie is, uh, you know, there's some implied threat of rape. Uh, but you never feel like this movie is sexualizing Anderson. You, you know, there's never a Michael Bay close up on her butt going up the stairs. Yeah. Right. Um Neither of these characters are sexualized in any significant way. And the, but at the same time, you, there's never a statement made by this film about, you know, ding, ding, ding. We're a feminist movie. You know, yeah. just dread is uncomfortable with this or something. Mm-hmm. It's just there. And, and I think both of them sort of steal the show in part because Urban is so reserved correctly mm. as Dredd. Well, you see about that, I think the only time... I mean, sex is a part of this film in, in two ways. Like, you know, um, both 
well, Marmite was a prostitute who who came up from that bit and and was basically started to a point from sexual assault. You know, like, <laughs> again, like it's not it's a story. It's literally a story beat. Like that's her origin story. Move on. Like now, that Marmite is not really defined by that moment. More her entire past. This is just who she is. Um, and with Anderson, it comes up when uh, Kay, uh, the guy that they find is responsible for the murders. Uh, Wood Harris, um, when they, you know, he finds out that she is a psychic, and he says, you know, he says, all right, so um, you can read my mind. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, okay, so what am I thinking about? And it basically sort of, it's a glimpse of him trying to shock her with some, um, it's just you know his sexual fantasy of what he would do. That it never, at no point does it again. Does it sort of. If, again, if it was a Michael Bay film, it would go straight into his head and probably depict <laughs> the entire bloody thing. But it doesn't. Like she just basically punches him out, and she says, "You know, you basically you you are immature." He does shock her then because then he says, "Well, what about this?" And you find out that then he's obviously done things like he skinned people and done some mm-hmm. horrendous things, and that does shock her. Um, but that's it. But like you say at no point do they ever really play into that. Probably anymore. It's not a point. It's the, the fact that Anderson is a woman in this film, or even that Marma's a woman. Is, irre- is is irrelevant throughout all of this, um, and I do kind of like that because it's it's a null it's a null point, isn't it? It's sort of like you know she just happens to be a, a female judge. Um, however, I was going to say that like, we talk about her, huma- her humanity. There was something like dread in this is a physical force, and and I love Carl Urban for it. I think Carl Urban is a great choice. I think he does. He looks like the Carlos Esquera sort of like dread to me. Like he's 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 sort of like crinkled just enough to to look that way. Um, and he is just a like you say that rage that's under control is a force of nature. Like he is just the unstoppable force going through people. Um, and so his his way of dealing with things is is just brute force. So when they sort of you know they. They figure out, they take K in, they're going to take K in for the murders, but all of a sudden that's when the block gets locked down and there's this realisation that, like, well, why is Mama so worried about this one guy being taken away for interrogation? Like, what does he know? And so they sort of decide to question him a bit more. And this is one of the things they sort of, like, they've been around the block. We've seen Peachtree's is a slum. Like, it's an absolute dump. But they pull a um, a classroom and it's got an American flag on the wall, which is bizarre in itself. But they pull him into this horrible classroom and they interrogate him. And, and Dredd's response is basically to lift him up on the wall and to threaten him with um, punching his face in. And Anderson stops him and she's like, no, 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 stop. There's another way. Um, and again, like you know, it's, it can be taken as violence isn't the answer. Right. Um, and she's going to I think that's what it's setting up, right? It wants you to feel as if it's going there, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then she uses her psychic abilities to interrogate him in his mind. And you do, you get to see in his mind and sort of like she jokes about, oh, didn't, it's incredibly empty in here. And, you know, he tries to attack her with a gun and she says, she says a great line. She's like, just thinking about hurting me doesn't hurt me. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, he tries to shock her and she, there's all these mind tricks. But then it zaps out of his mind and you just see his reaction when she's like, basically, I'm going to interrogate you. And his reaction is he's fallen to his knees and he has wet himself. And she's like, okay, I now know this. I now know that Peachtree's is the hub for the manufacture and distribution of, of all slow-mo. And you go, and Dred's like, hmm, all right, 
that makes sense. And it goes on from there. But at no point does anyone go, what the hell did you just do to him mm-hmm. for that reaction in his mind? Um, yeah, I love that entire scene. And I, and I love that sort of reversal of uh, mm. setting it up as if she, again, you know, I, I mean, I do think that the 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 way in which she and Mama are female does play into both Mama's brutality mm-hmm. and also, you know, are sympathizing with her for what she suffered. Um, and also for Anderson playing with type as that person who wants to be a softer, gentler judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also in that scene as somebody who perhaps because she's a woman we think that she's going to be saying, you know, violence isn't the answer. And we realize absolutely that what she's doing with that urination, which is, you know, I, mm. the way it's shot is, again, beautiful. <laughs> just focusing almost like a comics panel on that urine flowing out that, that tells us, no, this is violent, too. I mean, yeah. She is not she's perfectly willing to do that. And maybe she rationalizes that it's better because. You know, it doesn't leave marks. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, we absolutely understand that if torture, if physical torture is is violence and is used to using it to extract information is at best problematic. This use of psychological torture in a world with uh, with psychics is also violent and, and also mm. a form of torture. And, well, yeah, and, and here again, this moral ambiguity. Right. I mean, these are the good guys. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the thing. It keeps setting up um, throughout this film. You get moments of them with the opportunity to be the hero, to be that, to be that typical hero. Like you say, the moment, and, and and I think the finale does go there a little bit in some places. But you, um, you get moments where Dread could sort of say. Um, you know, no, this is what's going to happen, or we choose not to do this. And let's like say he could sort of Anderson could choose not to kill that guy or whatever. Um, the you know the, the choices that are made um, don't go there for the most part. Uh, it sort of turns a little bit towards the end, um, where there are some choices made that you sort of go, um, would they have made those half an hour ago? Yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of like you need the redemption in some places. I mean, the, the, the key one I think of is uh, towards the end of the film, uh, Dredd and Anderson have got, still, got, still got Kay and they're about to sort of escape and they are confronted by two kids. I mean, older teens, not kid kids, older teens with guns uh, and told to freeze. And Dredd's sort of like, no, don't, don't do this. Don't be, you know, he, talks, he tries to talk them down. But then when they do. When the, when the guns when the firing does start, because Kay tries to take Anderson out, um, Dread chooses to stun the kids, um, and you, you they make a point of showing the gun and him choosing to the stun um, setting on on the lawgiver. And again, like you say, for everything that's gone before, there's a part of me that's like when a judge is in, under threat and mm-hmm. their lives under threat, Dread would just be like. Fire, bang yeah. bang, done, and so it's that thing of like, okay, we can't go there with kids, or we can't kill these. And I'm still like, mm, it's a, a blunting of the edge. I mean, you know, I don't know that could have been like a, a producer's note or something. Like, we can't have dread killing kids. And you're like, well, he's killed everybody else. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me as the kind of, I also agree, it's it's incorrect. It's just mm. wrong. And it does not fit the movie that they've established. I, I do sort of feel as if it's the sort of thing that a producer or somebody looks at and says, you know, this is really dark stuff. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is just uh, unrelentingly dark. We gotta give people something. And the thing is, that whole scene, I like that the kids are, you know, want to make their bones by taking out these judges, but it's not necessary at all for anything. You mm. never return to those kids who are stunned. Um, another point, I agree it's it's incorrect. It just feels like, okay, this is bullshit. Um, the earlier scene in which uh, Mama opens with the, the Gatling guns or the, mm. the rail guns, um, which, again, beautiful. Every time you look up the peach tree towers through that central uh, area, I, I mean, it's amazingly beautiful, and I love it for uh, just going against Hollywood that so many movies, so many uh, sort of uh, big action movies, somebody always got has a, some gun or some weapon where I think, why don't you just use that? Like, level that building. You've got bombs. You clearly don't care about civilians. In fact, as you say, half of these villains are sadistic. They seem to mm -hmm. enjoy it. Why are you holding back? Oh, yeah, right, because it would be a plot problem. And I do think it's a little convenient how they run away. But uh, returning to your point about the sort of pulling back, even there I feel like you see children in the rubble going to their dead parents. You don't see a mm -hmm. kid get his face blown off. And we know they're there, but... And I, I, I wish we would have. Mm. Yeah, well, that that scene, again, this is where, towards the end, they want to slightly differentiate the two, don't they? And th this is the point where, up until now, like, you've had Mama sort of, I'd say, sympathetic origin. You've had this thing of her being relentless. You've had the judges being relentless. Like, you know, in, when they, the, one of the reasons they're there is for the drugs bust. And mm -hmm. so when they end, I mean, you know, there's a great scene. We haven't talked about the slow-mo effects yet, but when they do a drugs bust and they kick in the door of the uh, apartment early in the film, it's all done through slow-mo and it looks awesome. Like it looks really stunning, the slow-mo effects. But they are not bothered. Like, you know, they go in and it looks like one person is reaching for a gun and they take them all out. And those, there's two <laughs> guys, there's two guys sat there doing slow-mo. Like they are no, they are not much older than the two kids that dread stuns later on. And neither of them had guns. And one of them mm -hmm. is blown through, blown like a bullet hole, blown through his face, and it is brutal. So it's, it seems a bit incongruous. You've had that scene where the, the, the literally the drug bus is then blowing the crap out of people, and then this thing later on. But it feels to me like towards the end of this film, there's this sort of they've got okay, okay we've got to have a divergence. We've got to make dread more heroic and i think it comes from that railgun moment um you know where they, they start to try and bring the to separate the two out i don't know what, you, what your thoughts are on that yeah no i i agree that i mean you could trace it to sort of i you know that i guess what you're trying to say is that mama is so brutal in that scene that she's willing to just kill them all yeah to sacrifice yeah. them half I mean, of the uh, floor yeah, I mean the thing is the way it's filmed again. I mean, like it looks, like you say, it looks beautiful. But the the fact of the matter is, like when it starts off, there's three railguns set up, and it's just three of her goons just like away at it, and she pushes one of them out of the way, and she takes charge. Yeah. And but when it focuses in on her face, like there's not like a, she's not like laughing maniacally or smiling. Like no, no, she's just 
it's that thing of like if you want if you want it done right you gotta mm-hmm. do it yourself like that's all it is like she's taken over and she's gonna do the business like she's not afraid of getting her hands dirty and when it's filmed like these are the, her people like this she's still probably killing people yeah. that works for her like you know this oh, is yeah. her blood and she's railing through that like you see like walls being dismantled and there is a there's a scene in particular where you see a woman like clutching at the daughter and it pans across the room quickly and there's a guy hiding behind a, te- a table and that table gets obliterated and he gets blown across the room and then you see like a homeless guy with a, a shopping trolley and he gets gunned down and all this like the violence and the death in that moment and you just seeing like dread sprinting down the corridor to avoid the gunshots like she's got no problem killing anybody and i do i think it's at that moment that like you know you're supposed to go regardless of everything you've learned marmar is the villain like she yes. cares for nobody and and then they're sort of like okay now we've got to set dread up as having some morals to keep them slightly apart so that when it gets to the end, it feels like a win. Like yeah, the think, right person has won. I think you're right, and I and I think that it's not just that we, you know. I mean, I guess if we saw the kids, it would it, getting killed. It would it would make her seem worse. But mm. I mean, you're right about her going for that gun is strange, mm. and it's it, its point is not immediately apparent because she doesn't seem to be celebrating it she doesn't seem to be you know thrilled with sadistic joy at at this terrible thing that she's doing um but it also doesn't seem clear why she you know needs to take i mean they're firing through walls it's not as if Mm -hmm. like she's like no aim over there you know (laughs) aim for that guy behind 20 walls um so yeah I, i i do think that there is a sort of a sort of pullback and and you're probably right to focus it that it starts there you're definitely right about those kids and those kids are shot in a way where you see their full bodies and it's mm. not, they're not being gunned down in slow-mo. Like I don't think the earlier gunning down of those drug users feels as if it is just an execution of unarmed kid. Um, and, and partly that's because of the slow-mo effect. It's also because they're in a room with a bunch of guys with guns who know, you know, Judge Dredd and Anderson are busting into that room. Who knows who, you know, I can't keep track of who's got guns. They're firing, you know, there doesn't seem to be a conscious choice. Aim at that kid's face, you know. Mm-hmm. And if there is, we're not made to think that. Whereas with a later shot, it's just, oh, by the way, these judges would, you know, Judge Dredd wouldn't kill a kid. Um, yeah. Which seems wrong. And and then, you know, yeah, I mean, by the end, it's just... It, I, I think it, it, it retreats into that kind of Hollywood structure for a while. It just kind of, you know, it wants to have a little bit of a good guy and a bad guy. Even though everything good about this movie is the way in which it does that last. Yeah, and, and that's not to detract much from the film. Like, it doesn't ruin the film, but it does start to do it. I mean... The one thing I, the one person I think survives that, up until I think their final moment is Anderson. Um, when she does, because she's taken hostage, you know, Anderson taken hostage, and you, you learn more about the gun, the fact that the lawgiver is DNA tracked. So when Kay tries to use it on her, like it blows his hand off, which is another great scene. I think it's quite good fun. But mm-hmm. um, when she does escape, like the fact of the matter is, she's lost her, her primary weapon, which is a fail. Out and out fail, and that's she knows that. So by that time, like she has come to terms with the fact that, like, if I survive this, like, I have failed. 
Um, and so when they get to the end, you f- you meet the technician guy again, you know, uh, IT crowd. And, and you, she learns, uses her psychic ability to learn his origin. And you find that he's just a victim. Like, he got caught. He's got no way out of this. His skills were basically um, shanghaied to work for Mama. That's it. Like, you know, he's got no choice. So she decides to let him go. And Dread questions her and says, like, what the hell are you doing? This is quite a simple sort of like he's a threat to us. You should be taking him out. And she stands up to Dread, saying, "Look, I know I failed, but until this is over and this assessment is complete, I have the right to judicial, um, mm-hmm. you know, to 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 f- pass judgment. And this guy's a victim, and I'm letting him go. If you've got a problem with that, that's your fault, not mine. Sort of thing. And right. standing they up. They owe me it. at the end, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for now, yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a judge. Yeah, exactly. And it's a great line. And I think, you know, Olivia Thurby is brilliant at doing it, like standing up to Dredd. And Dredd sort of, in that moment, you can see there's a bit of respect. Like, you know, all right, you're passing judgment. You're making a decision. Fine. Um, And part of me wonders if that's the sort of the real turning moment for for his decision later. Um, But again, like you say, I don't know what the point is right now, but that's that's sort of her trying to retain her humanity. Um, you know, she's going to do that. Yeah. But also, again, this thing of the judges can be heroes. You know, they can do the right thing. Um, and it feels like it's slightly Hollywood. Yeah. You know, giving her that out just to remind you that, yeah, she killed that guy before. But she felt like she had to. She was ordered to do it. She she made, she made the choice. She pulled the trigger. But this is almost like a little bit of redemption for what came before. No, I mean, she's a bad guy. I mean, mm. you know, look, it, it, in the real world, if you're executing, uh, you know, somebody, yeah. a POW, you are a war criminal and you mm. should go to jail for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, this is but you're right. Emotionally within the film, I, I do think that, you know, I'm not bothered by her making that choice. And I think it fits with with her standing up to dread and her, mm. you know, her arc of sort of finding her readiness, her courage, uh, you know, to, to, but really more about her courage to stand up to dread than her courage to stand up to, to mama. Um, but you know, and I do, I do feel like they keep her alive when she's a captive way too long, you know? Uh, and I, and she does feel a little sidelined from the, the final confrontation, you know, given that it, it really is her story. But yeah, I, there is a part of me that feels that also her making that heroic decision is also sort of softening her and then Dredd at the end chooses to mm-hmm. pass her even though, you know, she's lost the weapon. He sort of hides it. And that's as much of an arc as we get for Dredd, which I think is cool. Mm-hmm. But it does seem as if her choice there and his choice at the end are all a kind of massaging of their, their roughness. No, I'd agree with that. I mean, the ending, you know, if we just jump to that, that the, the, to Anderson's ending, she hands her badge to Dredd, saying like, well, I know I failed, and she walks off to get some, some medical treatment. And the chief judge says to him, sort of like, you know, pass or fail? And he sort of he hesitates and says, she's a pass. Uh, and, you know, and you know in that moment, like, okay, she, he's done it out of respect for the fact that, like, you know, she's, through, she's done this, she's proven herself as a street judge. Um, but like you say, the, the the truth of the matter is, if, ever, if if Anderson was to be kept as a character, like she's willing to accept it. But if you really wanted to go down that road, and Anderson does this a, a bit in the comics, it took a bit of time, but 
is for her to actually hand him the badge and instead of saying, "Well, I failed," is to actually say, "I don't I don't this." <laughs> like, yeah, this this everything I've seen today tells me I don't want to be part of this, and then walk away and 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 then dread saying like, you know, well, actually she's a pass, get her back in some way, but like you know. She, the fact that she she acknowledges and is also almost like regretful of the fact she's failed or feels that she's failed tells me that like no she's completely okay and complicit with everything that that's gone on in this film. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know about that. I I'm I'm curious as to, you know, now that we're talking about it, I'm curious as to sort of why she makes the decisions that she does and why Dread makes that decision. Mm -hmm. uh, presumably she makes that decision because she wants to be, you know, to redeem herself, to be a, you know, a kinder, gentler judge, to keep her soul amidst the terrible judge system, right? Um, and presumably Dredd makes that decision because he's learned to admire that or, you know, she's stood up to him. But, yeah, there there is a feeling like, yeah, she has written this off, right? Mm -hmm. She no It's not just that she knows that she's failed— she doesn't need to turn in that badge and walk away, right? Mm. Um, is it wise to pass somebody who really has, especially who's who's willing to walk away, right? Mm. I mean, she has, yeah, maybe, you know, the problem isn't that she has kept this guy uh, alive and, 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 you know, been kind to that technician. The problem is that she's been willing to walk away. And like you said, you know, in the comics, like, I mean, it's a different character. It's a different universe. But if we apply that comics logic, she's going to walk away eventually. Right? She's mm. a liability. She's got problems with what we do as judges, thinks Dredd. Let's give her a pass. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, is, is, is within the system, you know. Potentially. I mean, because that, that's exactly what happened in the comics, you know, in the in the nineties, sort of Anderson handed a badge in and went off and travelled around space for a not time. Not the best stories, by the way. <laughs> no, they're it's they're not. And, yeah. Good art. Yeah, the art is well. They're not a lot of painted nineties uh, painted art is good, but yeah, they're not fantastic. Um, but she still left, and then she came back, and, and and you know it's sort of dealt with. But yeah, it's the same. You know, like she's not. She's come to terms with with having failed and is willing to walk away. And so, but then they still give her. I mean, Dread gets his sort of like his heroic shot upwards, you know, as he walks out with his bullet hole on, and you get the sort of into the daylight as he walks away. But the final shot of the film is Anderson in silhouette with a helmet, which we'll talk about, and, and has obviously been re-enlisted, uh, however you'd put it, but rejoined the force. And he's walking out, and, and you have the the um, again the utterance of Carl Urban's dread doing a monologue over you know the uh, voiceover saying pretty much you say the thin blue line we are the line between you know between chaos and and um, everything. And it's sort of saying that she's now joined that, and she's part of it, and, and that's it. You know, I mean, it's almost like, but it, it never feels like a celebration. Yeah, well, I mean. So this movie's 90 minutes. I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, I'd like to redo that first chase, right? Mm -hmm. I know that both of us don't like the, you know, sort of interlude with the corrupted judges that it, oh, yes. you know, yeah. you know it, it, we don't need to see that in the first movie, you know, I feel. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
they're just kind of suddenly, you know, at Mama's at the end. Um, and whereas I like the sort of, you know, I, I, I love the, the novel high rise and the sort of mm-hmm. like we're trapped in this high rise. We've got to fight our way up every floor. Everything's gone crazy here. I want a little more of a progression just to see the toll it's physically taking on them and psychologically taking on them. Um, I love Mama's death. Uh, and I, and I like that, that bit at the end there, but, but, you know, for a movie that's trying, that that's trying to do a lot within a small budget, it's amazing what we don't see at the end. Um, and, and this is a complaint I have with every single movie. Basically, <laughs> I always find that Dana Moore is more interesting, right? It's like, Okay, so you've you've overthrown the whole you know uh, you know uh, precog uh, system. Mm. What do we replace it with? All these people yeah. are going to be let out, right? Like you know, a lot of people are going to be mad um, about that. You know, it's the same thing. Like, why don't we see those bodies being carted out mm. from this massive adventure? Maybe it wouldn't seem like such a wonderful victory if we have you know meat wagons and. And it, you know what? If we follow them to them being recycled, right, which is clearly established in this movie, and we know from the comic what this is, mm-hmm. they recycle the humans, you know, as as parts and food, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, maybe then we'd feel like, well, is this really a society worth saving? Mm-hmm. Maybe we could see Anderson get that badge back and think, you know, is this something I want? Yeah, I mean, I guess I have to do this, right? I mean, he passed me. How can I not take yeah. this opportunity? At the same time, I know the toll this first day took on me. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's the stuff from the comic that, that I loved about her arc of, you know, Judge Corey's death, mm. you know, and then and then Shabala, which sort of s- symbolically addresses just, this is a sensitive person who might not be cut out long-term. In fact, most of the psychics are going to burn out. You know, this is probably not a job that is going to be easy on her. And the fact that she knows that going in, taking that back, we should have those moments. None of those shots really cost anything. No, no. And that's the thing. I think from her, like you say, she just sort of dread going through this day and going on to the next. Not a problem because you know he's done this before. It's, it's like I say, it's just one more day. Yeah, but for Anderson, it you know it, it, the ending feels too easy, you know, a little bit. But even say, I I I would want to go. You've you've overthrown Mama. What's going to happen with the block? So, you know, you say you're about removing the bodies. I want to go back in the block because there's an entire floor that's just been eradicated. You know, <laughs> with with like machine gun fire. Like we've said, like judges come here, you know, very very rarely. All right. What about repair people? Is this going to? How long have they got? A, how long has this block got to live with machine gun with bullet holes throughout that building? You know, how long is that a penthouse room off limits now? You know, all these are the things that you think like uh, all the I say not just the bodies but the survivors. Like there's probably there could be people that survive, but but their apartment's gone. Like you know, and if anything. One of the key ones, what, what do we say? Sort of like, you know, violence loves a power vacuum. Mm-hmm. You know, those other those other gangs going to come back. Is this about to get worse for everybody? Yeah, I mean, that block is filled. I mean, you know, that block, I, I love the Judge Dredd blocks. And, and that, that is another thing that this movie does so well is, you know, it doesn't do the block wars thing that you were talking mm-hmm. about. But just 
the idea of just setting it in one block and, and the idea that, you know, there's a stereotype of like there are a million stories in New York, you know. Uh, yeah, there are a million stories in Mega City One. Every block is its own universe. Mm. And I think if anything in this movie does that and cements that feeling more than most 2000 AD stories. Um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this, this block is filled with, you know, gang members. <laughs> Those yeah. people aren't going to go away. They're not going to repent because they're still unemployed. They're still, mm. not, you know, if anything, there's more than 97% unemployment now. You know, there's that wonderful scene with the, the sort of skate park that uh, yeah. is uh, like a hundred stories uh, high that Judge Dredd and Anderson, you know, with their uh, convicts sort of uh, escape onto. And it's so absurd, but it's also so wonderful. Like they don't try to help those kids. Nope. This is what these are. They're latchkey kids. They're sealed outside of the building. At no point do we see their parents going like, <laughs> you know, you know, it really sucks that like those doors came down and stuck my kids outside on the skate park, uh, you know, a hundred stories up. Nothing about this is going to get any better. <laughs> There's no. no next day in which, you know, I mean, although here, here's, you know, it's a beautiful shot. I absolutely love the shot. But symbolically, another way in which the movie sort of pulls its punches or tries to, to give you that happy ending is that wonderful shot of the doors opening and mm -hmm. the light is coming in and, you know, a new day has dawned. Yeah, well, maybe that new day is not going to be so good. I mean... Now you've got 12 gangs vying mm. for uh, territory now. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, it, it, it's not going to address that because the film doesn't want you to think about that. Like, you know, Hollywood film, the, no Hollywood film wants really, you know, you to really think about that. I mean, um, every great action film has that, doesn't it, really? Like, you know, if, everything from like Die Hard or Speed or anything like that, or even where you go, What's the what is the true ramifications of this? Like you know, um, there's going to be some sort of ramifications. But yeah, you're not really supposed to think about that. Um, it wants you to think about the bigger world, but but also not. And that's mm -hmm. one of the weird things about this film. That you know, we talked. You you mentioned there about how both of us have sort of said in the past how the the the, um, the corrupt judges that come in, the four judges that Marmar seems to have sort of connections with, come in. They come out of nowhere. They actually acknowledge they're from a different sector, um, and then they come in and they sort of they're, they're dispatched pretty quickly. Again, I'm not too worried about that. Um, but it's, it's the big problem I have with this film is beyond Dread and Anderson, at no point do you see a competent judge force. Um, the, the, there's two judges that turn up and are literally turned away at the door and they're like, oh, we can't open the doors, it's a, it's a bit of a crisis we were doing a test and now they can't open and the judges are like, alright <laughs> and you say, like, well, you're useless and then the four corrupt judges turn up and they're allowed in and so you've met two judges that give up the first hurdle and then a bunch of corrupt judges and you're like, so what, is this like Gotham City? Is the entire police force corrupt? Like, how many good yeah. is, is Dread the only one? You know, is, is is what's the what is it that this looks like? Um, but at least one of those judges, they get you a bit of a justification, which I can side with and I can completely understand. Is there's a line where he says, like, to dread, he says, Do you know what this city is? This city is a meat grinder. It will yeah. take you up, it will tear you up, and it will spit you out. So why should I be giving myself to the giving up for this city? Like, you know. Why not make money when I'm trying to do it? And sort of again, is that part of you goes, yeah, all right. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think those are great lines. I, you know, I I feel the same way about them. I want them to be assigned to somebody else mm-hmm. um, because I don't need the subplot. And I, I think you understand why. For me, it feels wrong. I think you, I mean, for me, it, it feels like this is something that should be reserved for a plot in a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't want the Batcave invaded in the first Batman movie. Okay. Yeah. It's supposed to be a big deal when that happens, right? I don't want that to happen in the first movie. I don't want uh, somebody else to drive the Batmobile in the first movie. That should be a big deal. We need to establish that status quo. And you're right that there is ambiguity there. I mean, even in the comics, there's this sort of like where I'm, there, there, I'm sure there have been corrupt judges. I can't okay, think of yeah, one, yeah. you know, but... But you certainly see a lot of judges who, you know, I think like, you know, they're just falling off of railings and they're just yeah. getting blown. They're the, they're the like red shirts of Star Trek, yes. you know, where it's like, you know, yeah, you know, they went through the same academy, but some of these guys, and of course, you got to have red shirts, right? So they're going to be judges. And of course, it's dramatic to be like, we're after this perp who's killed 10 judges. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, the, you know, that's kind of a generic requirement. Um that I think they've gotten better at over time. But in this movie, like you said, you don't know whether this is Gotham and everyone is corrupt. You don't Mm. know how. And the other thing is that really matters because this is a movie about whether Anderson's going to become a judge and whether that's worth doing. Are they outliers? Obviously, Judge Dredd is an outlier, right? He's the ultimate badass judge. Mm -hmm. But, uh, But are they outliers in the sense that they even want to make a difference anymore? Well, and that's the truth. You know, you say about having the line assigned to somebody else. Like that line could have gone to K, the judge. Mm-hmm. You know, the the criminal or anyone else. There's there's a number of sort of people that could have gone to because you know instead of it being yeah we're corrupt judges because of this, it could easily be no I'm a gang member because of this. Right. You know, I tried to get a job. I tried to live the way the the best my best possible self or whatever. Like I tried it, didn't get me anywhere. Now I work for Mama and look at this. I can, you know, I'm, I've got money and I've got this and I've got that. Like, you know, yeah, this city chews people up and spits them out. Like, yeah, you're right. I, I, by having the corrupt judges there and not having a counterpoint to say all the other judges are fine. I don't know. It, it just feels like I say it should be. If anything, I, I would actually quite like that as a second film. Um, I mean, in the, in the, in the comics, uh, in, in, in the Dreadverse, there's a, a squad called the SJS, um, the Special Judicial Squad, which is the judges that judge the judges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they've got like, their internal affairs, and they all were, um, you know, in the usual sort of like, you know, uh, subtle tones that is the Dreadverse, they all have skulls on their helmets, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they wear like black sort of studded outfits rather mm. than the, the usual stuff. Um so yeah, like there's a story to tell there, just not in your first film, you know. Um, and I mean, if anything, there's a, there's a there's a, uh, a collection of stories that collected together are referred to as the Pit, um, which is Dread is assigned to become a sector chief of um, a sector and look after it and basically wheedle out corruption. Like if you wanted to do that, do that. You know, you could easily mm-hmm. probably do that with these with this film verse. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it just feels like a it's a it's it's a one of the few big mistakes I think this film makes. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, you know, for me, 
you know, I mean, thinking, I don't know if it's that I think as a, as a writer, or I just kind of, you know, uh, feel things thematically, you know, that thinking about what it is that we want in a first movie. The number one mistake that, that people seem to make and, and I seem to see in Hollywood is, you know, everything in the kitchen sink, right? Mm-hmm. We, you know, I mean, even even the Cursor saga being in, in the first one, I see why you want to do that, especially at that time, you know, that storyline looms large, you know, so many great stuff storylines have come since then or were really, really recent when that movie came out. Um, so I get why you'd want to go there, but that whole story it only makes sense as getting Judge Dredd out of Mega City One. You've got to mm-hmm. know what the status quo is before you disrupt it. Um, and so we feel what a big deal it is to go out into the radiated waste, right? No mm. one does that. That We don't feel that at all in that movie. I mean, some people say it's a big deal, but um, you're just thrown into it. And the same thing here, that, you know, what this movie gets so right is doing that small scale. This is a day on the job. The only thing that's really exceptional is that it's an- introducing Anderson, but she's the audience identification character. It gets so much right that mm-hmm. it's almost extra infuriating that it introduces these, you know, these judges and, and doesn't give you a sense of whether or not or, you know, we, we don't need to know whether or not the, ju- the judge system is a system that we would personally endorse or not. But we need to see whether or not the system that is going to judge Anderson and that ultimately Judge Dredd is lying to at the mm-hmm. end. Right. You know, I mean, he is misrepresenting <laughs> facts, yeah. which is cool. But I mean, it is a departure, um, you know, or a character uh, arc, uh, however small. But is that a system that it is correct to lie to? Is that a system that it's worth being longing to? Is that a system that maybe it does terrible things, but it has an esprit de corps? It has, you know, um, it's trying. We don't really know in this mm. film. And that's the sort of thing I think, you know, if I was given the opportunity, and I don't know what um, Alex Garland and Peter Travis were really going to aim for, because we were never going to get a sequel. Unfortunately, we never got a sequel to this film, which is tragedy in itself. Amen. Um, but, that, I mean, you know, um, both you and I know that the original concept or the original pitch they put forward included Judge Death, right. um, who is... You know, one of the those Judge Dread nemeses. He's sort of been around from. You know, in fact, he his first appearance was also Judge Anderson's first appearance. Yeah. Um, Is it uh, one forty eight? <laughs> yes, well, yes, yeah, so quite early days. I mean, back in the sort of you know uh, seventy eight, seventy nine. But the the um, the, to go straight to Judge Death is a bit of a stretch. I mean, this supernatural entity, the Dark Judges, and lots of other stuff would be a hell of a jump for anybody. Like, you know, yeah. it's. it's as you say, it's that Avengers syndrome, isn't it? Like, got everything in the kitchen sink. Who's the biggest villain? Throw them in. Um, you could, and I think they sort of they pulled it out, and the intention was to build up to that at some point, whether it be film three mm-hmm. or film five or whatever. But it should be an expansion of the world, wouldn't it? Film one is Die Hard. You know, right? We're trapped in a building. Here's mm-hmm. how the judges. Here's how badass Dread is. Here's Judge Anderson. Here's what the world's like. It's a rough, tough, horrible place. Film two, here's the judicial system. It's a slightly bigger story, but you're going to learn about corrupt judges and some other bits and pieces. Film three is you can then start introduce maybe 
you know, you're, maybe some supernatural elements and some other bits and pieces. You've already got a psychic, and you build up. So by the time you get to the Judge Death film, you go, yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and that's what I think. That point, you've got to ask yourself, does this make sense at this point? And I'm glad to say that they said no. Judge Death doesn't make sense at this point, but also, like I say, those corrupt judges feels yeah that, like, that, oh. well and and you know you're right that like i mean that was the original pitch right mm-hmm. and, and i'm gl- we're both glad that it wasn't taken i agree with absolutely everything you said i think what i read was that the the revised trilogy that garland envisioned was the second one was going to explore origins mm. and the judicial system exactly like you said and the third one would be would be judged out and and like you said, especially if you introduced, I mean, that corruption of the judges would fit perfectly in the second one. Um, sort of, it's also a widening of scope, right? Mm. Widening from one block to, you know, Mega City One more broadly to the whole universe, you know, sort of yeah. judged. Uh, um, but you can see how the, and I, I love what you said about sort of introducing the psychic elements. So then the goofiness of Judge Dr- of Death is not so goofy because he is the Joker. I yeah. mean, he is, if you're going to think of who is the arch nemesis, right? He is the arch nemesis that immediately comes to mind. Um, not as commonly depicted as say the Joker is for Batman, but he mm-hmm. is like that. And you can understand the urge to put the Joker in the first movie. The, Bur- the Burton one does it and sort of threads the needle and, and does it fine. But it is a gothic adventure. It's not establishing. I mean, Judge Death is the supernatural force. How do you get people to understand this futuristic world that, in this movie, shot? It's shot a lot more like Blade Runner than it is, you know, a conventional, dumb, you know, action movie. You're supposed to understand that how that works, the judicial system, and you know, a, a parallel universe that we drew this this undying uh, being from who can possess people, you know, uh, that's asking a lot. Mm. And that would have ended up being a two and a half hour film, unfortunately, I think. And that's, that's, and that's, but I think you said that, that, that mentality to everything in the kitchen sink is exactly that, because that's what that film would have been. It's like, yeah, we're going to introduce dread. We're going to have to introduce Anderson. Cause it's, if you're going to keep to the comics, she is the solution. Um, yeah. You know, um, spoilers for a 40 year old comic but like she sacrifices herself to to encase um dread i think but i mean this is one of the things with with the you know probably the 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 skill of john wagner when he was writing this um uh, is he would take some of the ridiculous and then when you have a story like uh, death um you know the introduction of judge death he would then utilize some of the silly in with the serious Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Judge Death when his, his first introduction, drawn by um, uh, Brian Bolland as well, actually, yeah. um, and looks amazing. Uh, so, you know, when you say about the Joker, I was thinking about the Killing Joker, and you obviously, you know, so but yeah, he introduced Judge Death. The story itself is relatively; it's some parts are played for horror, then there's some bits of humour. Um, but the 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 film has got sorry the the story has got those moments of peril. Like you you see like you, like you say the body being resurrected. You see corpses and sort of thing. However, when you see death defeated, like his body's blown away and his essence then jumps into Anderson as a willing host, they encase her in a thing called Boing, mm-hmm. and Boing 
is a um, it's a plastine kind of thing that you can sort of spray on yourself. So it's a spray that creates a plastine bubble around you so you can bounce in a, a boing chamber, which is a big room where you can literally just bounce around and it's almost like a, a hobby. But then they utilize that to encase and trap death. And so it's sort of like, and, and Boeing was introduced, let's say, 10 to 12 yeah. issues beforehand. So it was, yeah. it's sort of wag- it, it wasn't until I reread a lot of stuff, I was like, oh, Wagner, you clever little monkey. <laughs> You've done this silly story about Boeing and how mm-hmm. it, you know, it gets used and it ends up sort of being misused in the city. But then you've also set that up so that you can use it to encase death later on. Um. And so, you know, you, he takes that silly and introdu- and that's part of the, why the comics work. It's because the silly is there. The wackiness is there. But it still integrates with those more serious and darker elements. And again, like I said, you'd have to build up to that in a film world. If you were to try and do that to the mainstream, you could not sell to someone. By the way, we've got a boing chamber as well, which <laughs> is this plasticine stuff that you can sit in and, we'll, you know, you can do stuff. And then we're going to use I mean, they'd probably do a very different ending. But, like... You need to accept certain things, and you know they, that was almost the problem with the the ninety five one, wasn't it? I mean, the ninety five one looks great. Their mega city looks awesome. Like the vehicles are great. Even the uniforms look the part. You know more so than probably the twenty twelve version. Um, they have a different purpose. But the thing is, again, they try to throw too much at you. You know, you get sort of like jokes about recycled food. You get. Um, you know, block war. You get the mean. You get the angel gang. You get uh, clones. You get um, the fact that the bikes hover. You get all this other stuff, all thrown in. It's that kitchen sink mentality. But at the end of the day, you're like, it's a bit much, and it all feels a bit. It feels a bit too silly. Um, you know, so and that's why I like this. It pairs it down, as you and I said. We like the smaller stories, and even some of the aesthetic choices just work. This is a grittier world. So if you're going to go for a gritty world, you don't want a big shoulder pad and a massive eagle and big green boots. Yeah. And in shoulder pads, you know, or elbow pads. No, no, we're going to go for something that looks tactical and beaten up and like, you know, like biker leathers. And they go, yeah, I fully accept that. That makes total sense. In uh, looking at. Um research for judge fred uh recently i came across a interview with alan grant mm. uh who usually you know he wrote a lot of classic stuff with john wagner and i th- and if i'm remembering correctly grant said that wagner gave him the best advice on writing he ever got which was take every idea and push it to the point of absurdity that it mm. just absolutely breaks and then pull back one step right and i thought Boy, that is revealing about yeah. John Wagner and, and brilliant, brilliant advice. You know, we we always talk about wanting movies uh, to be like the fullest version of themselves, right? To mm-hmm. commit to what it is that they're doing. And the idea of committing to the point of absurdity, but just not going so far that the audience just goes like, is this a parody? You know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that this movie does that, right? I mean... This movie does that gritty, realistic version. It commits to it. It cuts out, it trims out that stuff that doesn't fit. There's no boing. There's no, you know, uh, there's no aliens. There's no, you know, psych. There's not even a psych, psychor, right? Um, you know, it, it really has pared it down. In another movie, and it, it really is such a shame that we didn't get a sequel, and that 
you know, this has kind of become a cult film. Mm. This is, you know, very well revered uh, as a film. And yet it's, you know, when we talk about John Carter, we talked about Tron Legacy. We've talked about these movies where essentially our analysis of uh, the film, at least financially or as a decision from the studio, is that they threw way too much money at that first movie. What they needed to do was exactly what Dread did. Pare it down, tell a you know smaller story, make it really, really good. Um, focus on the writing, focus on the directing, focus mm-hmm. on the cinematography, focus on the acting. They did that. They got basically everything right, and it still didn't work. <laughs> and we still didn't get the sequels, which could have done, you know, the judge, the wider world of judge, the judges, and could have done Judge Dredd. And imagine if those movies had been successful and they could have had $200 million. Mm. How awesome would that be? With Alex Garland writing Judge Dell oh, for it a two hundred million dollar budget, uh, you know, I think I I do. That is, there's always that what if. Like I always dream about the what if, and I, I I never understand. I never completely understand why this film failed, um, because it, it, it's a it's a number of reasons, and I get I get like the financial ones. It's an R rating. It's a hard R as well. Like this film does not hold back, so you know it it restricted the audience fine it's still a comic book film fine so that maybe reduces the audience it's a sci-fi film so it's not the thing is like when you look at deadpool as a comparison which again reduced budget because they didn't have faith in the character but did gangbusters did absolute gangbusters and rightfully so it's a good fun film and it does exactly what it says on the tin and it does it keeps it cheap but the difference i think is you had uh ryan reynolds massively involved in all the marketing doing all the silly silly stuff he did which was you know incredibly creative and incredibly daring and so people were like what is that i've got to say we know that first it was it was a relatively known ip in the comic world but in the mainstream like it became the ryan reynolds character and so it was recognized and also it was funny like people will get on will get on board with most things if they think it's funny. So, you know, com- action, comedy, all this stuff, they will get on with it. With Dread, I think it's so in your face, so brutal, and so sort of things, it, but it doesn't have the comedy that I think the mainstream needs to be able to accept some of this stuff. Um, and that's not, that's not, I don't think it wanted it. I don't think they should have done it. I think it's exactly what, the right way it should have been done. But, you know, um, it's one of those. It's too maybe it's too brutal. With the marketing on it was was okay. It was fine. I think that the, the, the you know like you say you see the score or some other stuff. But there's just something that the, no, the mainstream were just not ready for. Um, dread in 2012. Yeah, I think that. I mean, first of all, in 2012, there have been so many comic book movies, right? Mm. I mean, the audience. You need more than just this is a comic book movie. I mean. Mm. Uh, that, if anything, is a stronger negative. I do think that the marketing for this, I mean, you look at the poster, it looks generic. It yeah. looks like, yeah, I'm a badass in a vaguely future world. It doesn't feature Anderson. It doesn't feature Mama. Um, you know, what makes this different? And I often have in some of our conversations and in thinking about art, used sort of Mad Max Fury Road as a touchstone. That's a movie that, what in the world do you have to market, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, 
you know, remember that Mad Max guy that uh, nobody especially likes and doesn't remember <laughs> all that fondly? Uh, well, we decided to recast him and do yeah. another one, you know, decades and decades later that nobody asked for or needed. And also, he's not even the protagonist. <laughs> and, you know, it's three hours long or whatever it is. And, um, you know, how in the world do you justify that movie? And it seems to me you justify that movie on the basis of its visuals. You you yeah. it, you run that commercial and you make people feel as if they're going to go someplace, right? I mean, I want to go someplace with art. I want to enter a different world. And I don't know what the plot is of Mad Max Fury Road, seeing one of those commercials, but mm. I know it will be an experience. I know that that looks amazing and I want to see it. And I think that they could have done that Obviously, this came out earlier, so there wasn't that kind of model. But they could have, you know, the scary thing is if they had done something like that and cut together, like, you know, Mama and, and the visuals of just, like, the, the city and the, and the bullets flying across and people getting chewed up as much as you can sort of show and just give that visual distinctiveness to, to help people think, okay, this is going to be a a ride, and I don't know what this story is, but mm. it is violent and it is stark. Um, if they had done that, probably people would say, yeah, looks too much like Blade Runner, and remember, that didn't do well. We're not selling a feeling here, guys. So I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, neither is a, a marketing guys. There was obviously a reason they marketed it in the way they, they The thing is, they lent into some of the right stuff. Like, the trailer contains... Um, some of the slow-mo look, it contains some of the score, which I think is great. It just, like you say, it's that thing of, like, what's the hook? What's the hook that brings people in? Like, they were just hoping that the name Dread was going to be enough, you know, I think, to an extent. But you're right to, to, to make that comparison to, say, uh, Fury Road, because that trailer is mental. Yeah. Like, that trailer, you watch that trailer and you go, I don't know what this film is. I know it's a, you're telling me it's a Mad Max film, and I can see that Tom Hardy's supposed to be Mad Max, but like you've got guys on poles on the back of like lorries, you've got the doof warrior there with his guitar and flames, and then you've got like all this other bits that like you know the colors keep changing, what's going on, and and then they're like, Yeah, go see it. And I'm like, I will, I will, I think I (laughs) will. Um, but with Dread, like you say, the trailer's fine, but they, they, I think there was a fear of the violence. The fear of the bruise. Again, just looking at the, what the year this came out, mm-hmm. you'd had Iron Man, you'd had like you know Watchmen, and this other stuff. And I think they were looking at it and going, "How do we, how do we market a non-hero?" Yeah, you know, we're trying to tell that Dread's it's called Dread. Dread's got to be the central figure. He he gets the hero shot at the end because that that shot at the end. Is of him when he's pushed pushed Mama out the building out the window and stuff. Um, is clearly a trailer shot. There are several shots in this that you go, that's a trailer shot. Um, mm-hmm. And they wanted that, but the rest, I'm like, no, there are bits in this you should have shown, but you probably couldn't because of the level of violence. So I don't know. It, it, it must have been it must have been quite restrictive. But I, I I've never met anyone that's watched this film that hasn't liked it. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good point. And I don't either. Um, you know, I mean, it's I can't imagine anyone not saying it's, you know, eight, nine, ten out of ten. It's it, it's in that range. Mm. If you can tolerate action movies and sci fi movies, you will like this movie. Um, 
Yeah, and you know, the other thing is, it, it, it strikes me as another kind of comparison is that obviously RoboCop was strongly influenced by Judge Dredd. This movie feels influenced by RoboCop in turn. Mm. Um, you know, it feels very Verhoeven RoboCop. And, you know, and, and, and in good ways, but there's a kind of like sardonic sort of attitude toward that violence that while not as goofy here as in RoboCop, there's a kind of uh, bru- celebration of brutality mm. of a futuristic, brutal world that I don't know that they can sell RoboCop today. I don't oh, know how no. you do that kind of, you know, that kind it, of tone. Maybe the marketing for this could have could have watched RoboCop or even watched more importantly watched Starship Troopers. Mm-hmm. Like if you'd have done the marketing for this where it was. Those adverts of like, I'm doing my piece, I'm, or I'm doing my part, mm. I'm doing my part, and then the kid coming out going, I'm doing my part, and then all laughing at them, that sort of thing. Like, do some marketing. I mean, they obviously didn't, they don't think they had the budget, but you know, you had all the costumes, just bring the people together and do some stuff. Like, I would love like to see some recruitment, of that. Like a judge recruitment video. Yeah. yeah. Or even a judge, or even like a judge warning, sort of like, you know, where they're trying to sell the judges as being your friend, but like in a true john wagner fashion it's sort of like you know um if you're suspicious of a you know this or if you if you if your friends have committed a crime report them Mm. to your local judge and they will deal with them um you know they will deal with them in you know in a suitable fashion in you know in in a fatherly kind of tone cut to a judge beating the crap out of someone you know like, yeah, or a kid, or a kid, you know, crying as his parents are taken away, you know, for, yeah. for some crime that he's turned them yeah, into. Yeah, I would love to yeah. see a series of adverts of that, of sort of like you know them trying to sell. If anything, I think you know you could look at modern day recently. Um, we'll have to wrap up in a second, but we'll wrap up in this point really. Recently, with the sort of um, people losing their jobs and everything else through COVID, the British looked at the in particular artists and the arts and said. Well, we can retrain you, and you know you can. There's a picture of a ballerina, and it said um, Sophie um, could be a programmer in her next job. She just doesn't know it, and it, it landed flat. You know what I mean? Oh, it was ridiculous. Right. But it's that typical government advertising propaganda. Like this film could have done that. A series of adverts that sort of lean into that. We're trying to be friendly, but actually, it's a veiled threat. Mm-hmm. You know, we're watching you, sort of thing. Do all that 1984 stuff. Do all that sort of Starship Trooper stuff. I think that would have been an awesome marketing campaign. Yeah, I think that's very clever. Oh, it, it could even be, you know, sort of, uh, you know, join the judges, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, or go on a ride along with this film, you know, join the judges, you know, yeah, have adventures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Excitement, you know, just like brutality. Yeah, sell Mega City as a as a holiday destination. You know, sort of mm. like you no know, Mega City, the city of the like like Detroit, city of the future. You know, um, meet its friendly people, and then you get sort of like you know pictures of like Marmar and a gang and whatever. Like, if 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 you'd have advertised this and acclimatized people to what it was in a funny way, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a humorous way, I think people would have gone and they'd have been more accepting of the brutality and the violence that gone with it. Mm-hmm. If anything, maybe this could have leaned a bit more. Into, if it had lent into it any more in the film, I think it'd have had that comparison with Robocop, which I think would have been detrimental. Right. But do it in the advertising campaign. Get people through the door. 
There you go. We yeah. should be we should be marketing people. We've just solved it. <laughs> Well, it, it is true that the most important thing, marketing, and I'm, I'm horrible at it, having done a million Kickstarters, <laughs> the, the thing that I realized that changed everything was realizing I don't need people to like what I've done. I need to get them to buy it. And yep. then they get to like what I've done. I don't need to, you know, you don't need to represent the film correctly. You yep. need to get them to, you know, see that Butts excitement, feel something, it's, and go see it. It's books in seats. And I think, I can't remember who said it, but there was a marketer who said, especially about modern cinema, as long as you get them, as many people butts in seats that first weekend, mm. it doesn't matter. You could have a 95% drop-off if everybody's already gone to see it that first weekend. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You've paid for it. Well, uh, and, and if you have a movie like this, where everybody who sees it likes it, you know, they're going to say to their friends, you know, yeah, you're thinking RoboCop, you're thinking Starship Troopers, you're thinking a little tongue in cheek. That's not what this movie is. But trust me, you'll like it. It is violent. But, yeah. you know, yeah, that's what you want. Right. But you don't can't get to that point until you get those butts in the seats. Exactly. Anyway, we've got time. So any final thoughts on uh, 2012's Judge Dredd? Well, I'm surprised it didn't do better because I, I, my understanding is that all Brits were were required by law to see this. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, go see it if you don't. I, I hope we get more dread stuff, but you know, you will like this movie. It, it will not revolutionize your idea about anything, mm -hmm. but you will enjoy it, and it is a well-made movie. Uh, I wish there were more movies like this. What about you, Scott? No, exactly the same. Yeah, please go check this out. It is a cult film. It's one of those films. It's going to be the you know, in some case, I think if it's the 21st century Blade Runner, you know, it's one of those films that people derived at the time. Go see it. It's really good. Make your own decision. More than anything, Carl Urban is a massively underrated actor, and I'm so glad he's getting more attention for doing things like The Boys, because he is ace. And the fact he agreed and actually proposed that he keep his helmet on for the entire film just goes to show how committed they were to this film. So fair play to them. I love this film. You know, it may be that I love it because of how piss poor 1995 was <laughs> <laughs> but i do i enjoy this film i enjoy the fact it's brutal i enjoy the fact that there are moments of humor in it mm -hmm. yeah there are there's little bits of dark humor in it um and it works to me there are and it, is it perfect no not by a long shot but it is better than some of the other stuff that we've had pumped out to us in the last couple of years so definitely definitely go check it out um but anyway we're going to go on to our last film of this season next week or in the next episode uh, and it's going to 2017 I think 2016-2017 we're going to go into Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets um, and it did it did occur to me uh, whilst we've been talking about this that the last three films of this season have basically been films that we enjoy um, I haven't watched Valerian pretty much since it came out but we, we all enjoy but didn't do well mm -hmm. <laughs> So it's quite interesting to sort of see how we're digging into that. So I'm looking forward to sort of for us for talking about Valerian, which was your choice as well, actually. So I'm looking to see how we, we take that. Yeah, I am too. And I, I and I like that we've both done... I mean, Dread is a mutual love. Mm -hmm. We both are unabashedly admirers of this film. But, you know, I think that Valerian is sort of like the, the Julian John Carter, where, you mm -hmm. know, uh, <laughs> I, I, I like it and I see flaws, but I am like, yeah, you know... But it's so much fun. Look at that. <laughs> so I, I think it's fun to just kind of examine our what what makes us happy and then yeah. you know sort of see the flaws and see another perspective on it. We will definitely get to talk about Dane DeHaan being used as a set as a <laughs> uh, an action character. 
Which I, I even yeah, that's some odd yeah, casting, I, but I don't get. <laughs> Uh, but yes, excellent. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And if you do want to talk to us more about Dread or John Carter or any of the films we've talked about before, you can find us on uh, on Twitter uh, at Pod Time Space. Uh, and of course, if you enjoy the show, leave a review. Let us know what you think about it. I don't care if it's five stars, two stars, whatever. Just leave a review. It always good feedback, uh, and we do enjoy hearing what the fans have got to say. Oh, man. we want people to listen, and we love you guys. You know, we do. We love to- we love hearing. We really do. So let drop us a line or drop a review. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, stay safe, and we shall see you on the next episode.